instead of verse 12, uh, Mark 14, 10 to 31. Beginning to read then in verse 10 of the 14th chapter of the Gospel of Mark. Hear now the word of the Lord. Then Judas Iscariot, one of the twelve, went to the chief priest to betray him to them. And when they had heard it, they were glad and promised to give him money. So he sought how he might conveniently betray him. Now on the first day of unleavened bread, when they had killed the Passover lamb, his disciples said to him, Where do you want us to go to prepare that you may eat the Passover? And he he sent out uh, two of his disciples and said to them, Go into the city, and and a man will meet you carrying a pitcher of water. Follow him wherever he goes. Say to the master of the house, The teacher says, Where is the guest room in which uh, I may eat the Passover with my disciples. Then he will show you a large upper room, furnished and prepared. There, make ready for us. His disciples went out and came into the city and found it just as he had said to them, and they prepared the Passover. In the evening he came with the twelve. Now as they sat and ate, Jesus uh, said, Assuredly, I say to you, one of you who eats with me will betray me. And they began to be sorrowful and to say to him, uh, one by one, Is it I? And another said, Is it I? He answered and said to them, It is one of the twelve who dips with me in the dish. The Son of Man indeed goes just as it is written of him, but woe to that man by whom the Son of Man is betrayed. It would have been good for that man if he had never been born. And as they were eating, Jesus took bread, blessed and broke it, and gave it to them and said, Take, this is my body. Then he took the cup, and when he had given thanks, he gave it to them, and they all drank from it. And he said to them, This is my blood of the new covenant, which is shed for many. Assuredly, I say to you, I will no longer drink of the fruit of the vine until that day when I drink it new in the kingdom of God. And when they had sung us a hymn, they went out to the Mount of Olives. Then Jesus said to them, All of you will be made to stumble because of me this night, for it is written, I will smite the shepherd and the sheep will be scattered. But after I have been raised, I will go before you to Galilee. Peter said to him, Even if all we, uh, even if all are made to stumble, yet I will not be. Jesus said to him, Assuredly, I say to you that today, even that this night, before the rooster crows twice, you will betray, you will deny me three times. But he spoke more vehemently. I have to die with you. I will not deny you. And they all said, likewise. May the Lord bless this reading to our good understanding. A faith must have its focus, or a focus. If I was to examine 
questions about faith. What is what do upon what does your faith rest? What is your faith in? You, you may you may have the insight to say, well, my, my faith is in Jesus Christ. Well, I'd immediately say, well, what is it about Jesus Christ that your faith is resting upon? What particularly, what if you think of a of a of a diamond ring, what facet, what what plane of that ring sparkles the most to you that you want to put your faith, you rest your faith upon that thing, and um, and uh, very often people get pretty confused when they think about faith in that way. They don't exactly know uh, what's how how to answer such questions, but. Um, uh, our faith must have a focus. We must know particularly what it is about Jesus, what it is about what he has done, that makes it worthy for our faith to rest upon. Remember, faith is like a, a, a faith rests on something like a chair. And if I was to go to the front here and pick one of these empty chairs, um, my faith would let me to say, well, that chair is going to hold me up. That chair is going to be substantial. It's going to be supportive. And so I can sit down upon that chair. Well, what is it about Jesus Christ that is particularly worthy of our faith? If our faith is a spiritual thing that rests upon something else, what is it? And we know that it's, first of all, it's the person of Christ and the work of Christ, these two things. The person of Christ and the work of Christ. In terms of the person of Christ, we think of his deity and his humanity. Uh, we must rest upon the, as I, the divine son because just a human being is not worthy enough in terms of his powers to bless us with, with whatever, with his work. If his work is only the work of one human man, then it's not sufficient for the rest of us. If, it's, if the work is only by a divine person, uh, then it's not going to identify with us. But because Jesus is human and Jesus is divine, uh, his person gives us uh, someone who uh, can die for all men. Uh, there every one of us that claim, claim his power or claim his work. It's sufficient unto them. Uh, at the same time, we know that we must uh, see in this divine man and this, I mean, divine uh, God and divine and human being, we must see in them the, the work, the appropriate work for us. And we we belabor that we belabor that over time in talking about both the righteousness of Jesus Christ and His willingness to bear our sins and take our sins upon Himself. So, um, uh, so it behooves us. To think about these things, and even in prayer, then to, in your personal prayer, to say, to pray, "Oh, my Lord Jesus, you are the divine Son, and yet you are my human Father, also the the the, the source of all things in this world." John one says, "You are the, the the source of all, and I know that I am linked to you through your human heritage, through Mary and Joseph, and you really were a human being, and yet, oh Lord, you were the." The, the Messiah, who was a, this unique human being, uh, predestinated from all time to save his people from their sins. And then you came and you worked and you established righteousness every day of your life. We'll see some of that in this text tonight or today. We'll see how he belabored to achieve righteousness.
righteousness and goodness by following every single dictum of his heavenly father. And then he's pointing here very, very uh, poignantly to the death which was about to come. We see that in, in the gospel of Mark here. And then to the resurrection. This uh, It just happens today that this is what, what the larger world calls Easter Sunday. It's not spoken of that way. It's spoken that way in the Bible. It's just spoken of as Resurrection Day. But it, it is uh, happily as it is, we're here, and it's it's the day that is traditionally in church history uh, appointed as the day of resurrection. And we know that while the while his work of climbing the cross, his work of willingly being submitted to the cross to crucifixion is that great sacrifice which is prefigured by the the Passover that we're preaching about this morning. We know that while that is tremendously potent, and that's the basis of that's the basis of why we think we can sit on that chair or rest on him in terms of getting rid of our sin because he paid the penalty for it. There's no more there's no more demands that can be made by God upon us. If Christ has already paid our death penalty for us, well then, if we take that, he offers it to us. If we take it, that is a great ground for our faith. And, and while we know that that's true, the, re the resurrection in the Bible proves it. You know, it's one thing for Jesus to say that his giving his life for us was sufficient. That it really worked, that it really had power to it. But when we see him rise again from the dead, it's a proof of everything he said. That that life was not just the life of someone who was caught, totally caught up in his own delusion. No, it was as he said. He was the divine son, and he came and paid the penalty for our sin. And so we are able, if we're worried about our sin, we are able to rest upon him. Uh, to, to, to be that person who takes uh, our sin and destroys it in the sense that he paid the penalty so no more can be exacted of us. Why do we then, why are we anxious about God's judgment upon our sin? If we're in Christ, why are there so many neuroses? People are neurotically worried about their sin. And about the fact that they, they fear that God will exact something more from them in the future. Why is that? Well, they either don't know about Christ or they have not believed in Christ. Or if they have believed in Christ, it's a faulty faith. It's not a faith which is well instructed. If we're in Christ, we're a new creation, the Bible says. All things have passed away. All things have become new. That's what the Bible says. That's what God, that's what the Lord wants us to think about in our minds so that we don't live neurotically, afraid, fearful of his judgment. He wants us to be fearful of his judgment if we're outside of Christ. <coughs> but if we're in Christ, he wants us to be secure in him. So we come to that, this text with that, with this great theme in mind. And what we see here is that there's a contrast here between Jesus and all others. So if you want to, if you want to see, if you want to have it made very clear in your mind that Jesus is a completely different being in the sense of what he did, what he accomplished, who 
I'm talking to you, but that's not going to get you into heaven. Believing the obvious is not going to get you into heaven. Why should I let you into my heaven? If we do not say because of Christ, oh Father, because of what he has done, he is the key. He has done everything that I should do, and he's taken the penalty for everything that I have done. If we don't answer that way, our faith is simply faith and faith. It's, it's nebulous. It's nothing. It's a fantasy that if we know the Jesus of the Bible, we rest our faith upon him. Oh, praise the Lord. We have a foundation for it. We have the key, the pearl of great price, which obtains everything for us in terms of an, an, an eternal inheritance. Now look at the way this comes out here in this text. <clears throat> Jesus has been working with these 12 men. He's focused his attention, his specific didactic teaching affections upon these 12 men. But he announces in verse 12 that one of these men, Judas Iscariot, will betray him. Can you believe that? One, he, he chooses 12 out of all the people in the world. He chooses 12. And one of those is flawed to the core. His heart is dirty. His heart is filthy. He did not have true faith in this one. And compared with the average person in the world today, he had all the opportunities in the world to have the, the, the information about Jesus, the, the knowledge upon which faith is based. He had all the opportunity in the world to have all of that filled in, all the information filled in. He got to see Jesus day by day, meticulously obeying Moses. He got to see someone day by day, day by day, moment by moment, who loved the Father with all of his heart and all of his soul and all of his mind. How would you and I respond? How would we compare ourselves? What would go through our minds if we spent day after day after day with someone who was good? Totally good. Always loved. Every time you went with went to Jesus, you knew that he would give you a loving ear. He might upgrade you. He might recommend that you repent about something, but you couldn't get angry at it because he was always right. He, he always saw through to your heart. Now, how could we be one of those people? And then at the crucial moment, when the Roman authorities and the Jewish authorities, when they wanted to find some reason, trumped up reason, wicked reason, to get rid of this guy, how could we lend ourselves to that wicked plot? How could we? And yet that's what Judas did. And Jesus <clears throat> announces this, as it were, um, as he's talking to his disciples. And then the Bible goes, it goes from this right into the Feast of Unleavened Bread and the Passover. It just says in verse 12, Judas is verse 11, verse 12. Now on the first day of Unleavened Bread, when they killed the Passover lamb, his disciples said to him, where do you want us to go to prepare that you may eat the Passover? We, we see these events swirling around Christ. We, we see the events of our world today, how they just cascade down upon us to, to turn on the internet. 
internet, to open your phone, you might see a story on Hunter Biden, you might see a story, I'm just thinking of our day, you might see a story on the, the southern wall along Mexico, the Mexican boundary and all the chaos that's going there. You might you might hear see something about the, the, the Georgia boycotts. The Georgia has said that they want to tighten up their election laws. And so, um, you know, a large part of the country, I don't know whether it's half or not, but a large part of the country is up in, up in arms. How dare they demand that you are who you are when you vote, well, even though it's demanded of everything else. You can't, you can't get into the Democratic Party meeting without having an identity. You can't get on an airplane without an identity. You can't get, you can't get food stamps or you can't get anything else without having the proper cards. But um, the, the world is in chaos about these things. You might see Ron DeSantis, the governor of Florida. He's been a popular one on the news just because of the, the, what he's trying to do with Florida. Um, you might see news on China. China has been big news the last couple of years. And so you might might see a story on Matt Gates, who has been, uh, liberalism is trying to process him right now and get rid of him because they fear, they fear the, they fear the, um, the uh, good or the important man as he rises up in the Republican Party. They try to they try to trash him as soon as they can, whether they have good reasons or not. Uh, uh, they will definitely try to, to to dirty your name. And so we have all of this chaos, and it's it's just swirling around. It's all all that, and it I think it, it's confusing. It confuses me sometimes, and I I just wonder how all of these I- issues. How can we keep our ourselves on a straight line, you know, heading for any good destination. But that's exactly, you see, that's exactly what we see Jesus doing here. Jesus does not get confused by the details. First, he talks about Judas. He institutes the Lord's Supper. Then he talks about Peter. And Peter's uh, uh, denying him three times. And through the through the all the swirling chaos of Jesus' life, this is the last week of his life. He's about to be crucified. He knows it, and yet he, he's steady. He goes on. Now the first thing we see here in terms of of his um, behavior is that he is he it's the the first day of unleavened bread. This was actually Passover day. The feast of unleavened bread went for fourteen days. The Passover ceremony was on the first day, and then uh, the Feast of Unleavened Bread technically began on the 15th day of the month, which was the next day, which coincides with our Lord's Day. And there are so many pointers in the Old Testament that the uh, that everything would not be concluded on the Old Testament Sabbath, but that the real glory would take place on the next day. And, of course, that corresponds with Resurrection Day. So the, the Feast of Unleavened Bread goes from the first day after the Passover, after the Sabbath of the Passover, uh, to the first day after the Passover or, or the, the Feast of Unleavened Bread. So it incorporates two what we might call Mondays, or today, I mean, uh, to two, it would be Monday then, but it's, it was really Sunday now, called Sunday. And so... <clears throat> Uh, and so Jesus, he, he, he is in Jerusalem at the time of this feast. Now what we see when we, if you do a study of the Gospels, you'll find out that Jesus was in the city of Jerusalem on each of the three appointed feast days that Moses gave to Old 
Um, citations here and there which point out to the fact that Christ was there on Passover. That was the first big feast of the year. Uh, he was there on uh, the Feast of Weeks, which took place seven uh, seven weeks after exactly seven weeks exactly after uh, Passover and the first day of the week, and then uh, and uh, it became you know that uh, feet uh, weeks a uh, week week of weeks is forty nine days, so uh, the day uh, the day after that is the uh, fiftieth day, and that's why in Latin it's called Pentecost. And literally in Latin, and we know that that's when Pentecost fell on the second great feast day, uh, and so that's when the Holy Spirit uh, was blessed, and uh, that corresponded with uh, the 50 days after the people of Israel left Egypt, 50 days after uh, 50 days after Passover. What happened in Old Testament Israel? They received the law of God. And so that corresponds with the day of Pentecost. People say, oh, the law is opposite to the spirit. Well, not in God's economy. In God's economy, Pentecost falls on the, the day that Moses received the law in the Old Testament world. And Jesus was in Jerusalem on both of these days. By the time of Jesus, the majority of men did not obey this Mosaic law. They they, most of them would attend Passover, but then they kind of let things slide. They have, you know, they have something new in Pentecost. Then the last feast of the year was the, the Feast of Tents, uh, where by they would uh, see that God had, had uh, traveled with them and uh, tented with them in the tabernacle, the Feast of Tabernacles, throughout their year. Well, Jesus, this is just the first one, but we, but this reminds us that Jesus was at each of these ceremonies in the Old Testament, or in his day. Why is that important? Well, because Moses said that you had, that's what you're supposed to do. And so Jesus never missed one of them. We, we saw how, we see how, uh, Jesus' parents, when he was a baby, how he, how they attended faithfully. And so Jesus, even when he was a baby and he did not have control over himself, he still was there in Jerusalem to follow the Mosaic law. Is there any, is there any law, is there any ethical demand that God can make of us that has not been fulfilled by Jesus Christ? No! Because we see how Jesus meticulously followed the law of Moses throughout his childhood, through his life, through his, uh, through his teen years. We see how it was not a burden to him because he did it happily. And God blessed him providentially with a set of young parents. They were not rich. Mary and Joseph were not rich, but they were godly. They were humble, godly people. And through them, the son was able to successfully negotiate the whole of righteousness. He, he, he obtained righteousness because he did everything right, because, it, because his every act, his every thought, his every deed was good. It was right. At the end of his life, what do you get when you add all of these right deeds up, all of these good deeds up? You add all of them up, thousands and thousands and thousands and thousands of things that he did right. What do you get when you, what's the sum of all of that? It's 
outline of the text, he initiates he initiates the Lord's Supper and coordinates that with Passover. And it's lovely. And you see here that Jesus had it all planned out. They ask him, what should we do? He, he's, he points to them. He points to the people and places the upper room that he had already made arrangements for. Because in the swirl of events and the chaos around him, in the face of his crucifixion, Jesus is not confused. Jesus knows what must be done. He must finally instruct his disciples on what the, Lord, what the Lord's Supper means. We did this last week. We had the Lord's Supper last week, last Lord's Day. And here we see the, the, the basis of it. We see our, the great teacher, the shepherd of his sheep, we see him there teaching his people right before he's about to die, teaching them about the sacrament that is next on the church's agenda. Love of baptism. And we see how he is not confused by all of these events. He's not confused or distracted by the hatred of the Jews or by the fears of Rome. His, his mind is just focused totally and calmly. Like Canole, I get, you know, I try to focus on things like that. I usually get most of them right, but I'm terribly distracted by them. I'm always worried I'm going to forget this, forget that, do this wrong. Jesus, you just see him dedicated, peaceful, determined, marching, marching, marching forward to do what must be done. And this is, this is caught up between these two bookends of his betrayer and his denier, Judas and Peter. It's just, it's just so remarkable. It brings, it really brings tears to your eyes the more that you think of uh, the Lord Jesus Christ. Uh, <clears throat> when we get to the denial, he's just finished this instruction on the Lord's Supper, and then. Um, Jesus raises an unhappy subject. He says, all of you will be made to stumble because of me this night, for it is written, I will strike the shepherd and the sheep will all be scattered. An Old Testament quote that Jesus resurrects here on this occasion. Um, and Jesus predicts also, he says, but after I've been raised, I will go before you to Galilee Peter immediately interjects, even if all of them are made to stumble again, I will not stumble. How, how could you contradict the word of Christ at any point? Well, Christ says he's the bearer of sin, that he's able to save even to the uttermost. Are there those who will contradict that and then be lost forever? Have no heavenly inheritance? How can we contradict the Lord at any point? Do we not know who he is? Do we not understand his person? Do we, understand, do we not understand why he is the perfect ground or seat for our faith? Peter disputes him. Even if all are made to stumble again, I will not be. And I can just imagine Jesus saying these words assuredly. I say to you that today, even this night, before the rooster crows twice in the early morning, you will deny me. Three times. I 
how Peter must have wrestled with himself because he did not believe that that was possible. He did not believe that was possible. In terms of what he knew about himself, he loved Jesus. He, he felt like he would lay down his life for Jesus. How could, how could Jesus know more about Peter than he knew about himself? We believe all kinds of things about ourselves. We believe we'll do this, we'll do that, we say this, we say that. We do not know, brothers and sisters, we do not know one ounce of who we are except for the grace of God. And that's why we need our Lord Jesus so much. And so Jesus tells him that he would deny, uh, that he would deny him. But Peter just didn't get it. He spoke more vehemently. We will see in the next few passages where this comes to pass. We can just imagine Peter's complete destruction of heart and soul at that point to find that he did the very thing that Jesus told him to do. So in the midst of the swirl of events and the confusion, we see the steadiness of Christ. Four things here really quickly. First, his steadiness in attending the Passover feast. His steadiness in doing that. We see that where that was a basis of righteousness. Secondly, we see his steadiness in instituting the Lord's Supper. He's not derailed from the establishment of his new church, of the Messianic Kingdom and its meal. Thirdly, we see that he is steady in his word as he announces to Peter what would take place. And as he announced to all the disciples that they would all be scattered, that the Messiah, the Messiah's efficacy, that the Messiah's paying the penalty for sin was not going to be on the basis of sympathy of men. It was, he was not going to be encouraged by having dozen, dozens of disciples around him when he was crucified uh, as, if, uh, as if he could be saved or strengthened by them. No. He must die for their sin. And so we see the steadiness of his word. And, uh, and then lastly, number four, we see his steadiness in staying the course. In verse 27 and 28, he tells us that he would, that he would be struck, but he said he would be raised up again from the dead. So he was steady in staying the course. He knew what he had to do to be worthy of this faith that he would call us to put in him. Come unto me. Think of those words. Come unto me, all ye that are weary and heavy laden, for I will be your rest. And so Jesus was steady in coming to the feast. He was steady in instituting the Lord's Supper. He was steady in prosecuting his word. And he was steady in staying the course of salvation. Uh, last night, uh, there was the penultimate basketball game of the college season. Probably most of you didn't watch it. You're not big basketball fans, but the, the, the late night game was won. It was tied tie game, three seconds to go. They passed the ball in. Uh, the uh, the uh, player from what's uh, uh, what's the what's the what's the college that uh, huh? Gonzaga. Player from Gonzaga hoists it up just over the just crosses over the midcourt, leaps into the air, throws the ball up, goes 
off the backboard into the hoop. They won the Gonzaga won the game. Well, uh, the sportscasters last night could not make enough of this. There, there was replay after replay after replay. The whole, the whole. I mean, anyone who's given over to the vanities of modern sports was <laughs> was watching this thing. And as I thought, as I saw that, and I was and I was thinking about today, I thought to myself, why are why are people why why is not the human race more excited? about the, the basket that Jesus made, you know, what he did. People are, people are all caught up in these, you know, I mean, really, in the end of, in the end of history, it's not going to make much difference whether that ball went in or not. It's exciting for us in the flesh. But what about what Jesus did? Why are, why are our hearts so excited about the frivolous things of life, and why do they... Why are they so disdainful, almost, of the important things of life? Why can't we marvel at our Lord Jesus Christ and what He has done for the rest of history? If we if we do marvel, we shall be with the majority of those in heaven who marvel at the work of the Lamb. If we do not marvel, if we don't pay it, if we disdain it, if we dismiss it. And what should, we shall be with that wicked minority that cannot properly esteem the work and the glory of the Son of God. I would say to you, I would say to everyone in the church this morning, do not compare yourselves to the others. This, the sermon title is Jesus and the Others. Jesus and Judas, Jesus and Peter, Jesus and the other disciples. Do not compare yourself to the others and maybe feel a little bit good about yourself. Compare yourself only to Jesus. He is our archetype. Compare yourself to Jesus. If you do that, you can feel bad, but then you can feel good. <laughs> you can... You can realize that your faith is in that one who is worthy, who is worthy to be believed. Even our Lord Jesus Christ. Let us be people of strong faith today and firm faith. Let us be able to face the lions if they come and when they come. Let us know that he can deliver us even unto the uttermost. That they can lay traps for us. Our first psalm saying, uh, saying that they people the world lays traps for us, but God will have them fall into them instead. He lays a trap for people by disdaining Christ, by disdaining the, the, the Lamb, disdaining His work, thinking that it amounts to nothing. When in the end, that will be a trap for them, for eternal perdition. Whereas for anyone who feasts upon this man, this Messiah man, this lovely man, this divine God-son man, our, lie, our, our eyes will be full of the glory of the only begotten of the Father. Let's close. Our Father and our God, we pray that we might marvel at this scripture, at this word from my hand that thou hast given us, that we might see the connection between these different events that took place at the end of Jesus' life. We thank thee, O Father, for thy word. We thank thee for the contrast of it, for the power of it. Bless us, O Lord, in the power of it. Help us, help our faith to be informed and to be specific 
to be focused on our Lord Jesus Christ and exactly what he has done. Bless us with eternal life through it, O Father. In his name we pray. Amen.